0: The next three days, I was kind of accused by the police of being a murderer, being a monster. One of the first fights I had in prison, for example, was probably with the biggest guy in the prison. No way I will go into any of these prisons if there is restrictions on me going where I want, speaking to who I want.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the podcast in partnership with Najahi Events. Today's guest, he was imprisoned for 12 years for a murder he did not commit. He went on then to present a hugely successful Netflix TV show called World's Toughest Prisons. Raphael Rowe has built his reputation as a reporter on the BBC Radio 4's Today programme and as an investigative correspondent on the world's longest running television current affairs programme, BBC Panorama. Two of the greatest bastions of British journalism. He has reported from some of the most dangerous and hostile places in the world. Afghanistan, Democratic Republic of Congo, Sierra Leone, Borneo, Nigeria, Jamaica, Beirut, Colombia, Papua New Guinea and Haiti, just to name a few. He is a highly experienced and skilled investigative journalist and presenter on both primetime television and international streaming platforms. He hosted seasons two, three, four, five, and six of Inside the World's Toughest Prisons, commissioned by Netflix. His career was born as a result of spending 12 years in prison for crimes he did not commit. In 2021, he founded the Raphael Rowe Foundation to work with those who administer prison systems throughout the world and inspire them to abolish dehumanizing, degrading and dangerous practices, putting more emphasis on the health, education and rehabilitation of those in care. This is an incredible interview. I'm not messing around here. This is probably one of my favorites. Cue the music. Let's get stuck into the amazing Raphael Rowe. And lastly, thank you to Najahi Events, who have been sponsoring us now on the podcast for over a year. Najahi, bring motivational speakers to the region to help inspire, educate and motivate you to achieve better success and live a better life. I've got 17 podcasts to film while I'm in London this week. Yours has been the difficult, most difficult one to organise, but the one that I've wanted the most. So thank you so much for coming to join us today on the show. Well, I appreciate you saying that. And I'm sorry it was so (laughs) difficult. I'm a busy man with lots of demands on me. So
0: I'm glad I'm here and thanks for inviting me. No, it's really great.
1: Now, I have been genuinely a massive fan of your work for a long, long time. I don't think I've missed any work that you've done, uh, all of the content that you've created over time. But one of the things that I've always wondered is when people experience a trauma, why they would go and hunt down that trauma again. And you were in prison for a long time yourself, and then you made a TV show about prisons. And all I think, when I, when I literally watch you, and you know, I've made TV stuff as well, so I, I know what's involved in the process, but when I watch you in those prisons, it almost feels to me like you're, you're reliving some of the toughest memories that you created for yourself over the way and my first question is why
0: and and the simple answer to that why is because very few people are prepared to do it very few people have the opportunity to do it but more importantly it's not about the environment. It's about the people that are in that environment, and I was one of those people in that environment. Yes, here in the UK, maximum security prisons. So I know what it's like. And it's about that secretive world that we read about, or we see other documentaries about. But they don't truly reflect, in my view, what really goes on because they never really talk to the prisoners. They go in there and and try and capture content. That will deliver a program that they think an audience wants to watch and that's not what i do people go into prisons and they judge the individuals that they meet and that's not what i do nobody really wants to hear the story of a mass murderer, a serial killer a rapist a paedophile they're really uncomfortable conversations to have but it's not about those conversations it's about what you can learn from those conversations so i do it because I want to expose that secret world. I want to give a voice to people who are marginalised because not everybody in that prison is a paedophile or a mass murderer or a serial killer. Not everybody deserves to be in those environments like myself. And I'm not just talking about... Victims of a miscarriage of justice. I'm talking about people who have had traumatic experiences in their lives or come from cultures where their chances in life started at zero and they're still at zero. So for me, it's just so important that we show it for what it is so people can make their own informed in judgment rather than us judging what we see.
1: I was with somebody yesterday that said to me that the Monopoly Board is a great way of understanding society because on the monopoly board you start off with the old kent road and then you go up to Penterville, where the kind of lower income houses are which is right next to the jail but you move further away from the jail the more money you have until you get onto park lane and mayfair and stuff like that and He'd been in jail for a number of years and his experience was that we're those kinds of people. We've got a better chance of going to jail because we're those kinds of people. The society we grew up in, the communities that we grew up in, it leads us to that. And it made me really stop and think for a little bit, you know. But is
0: it true? I, I'd ask the question, is it true? I grew up in a council estate, right? I grew up in a poor, marginalised community where there wasn't much money, there wasn't much work, there wasn't much aspirations. But not everybody from that community ends up in prison. Yeah, they have a bad start in life, but the majority do go on to find work or to just exist. So I would argue that not everybody who comes from poor communities or, or less opportunities in life do end up in the criminal justice system, i.e., prisons. E- e- eventually, the ones that do we highlight more than the ones that don't.
1: That's a really good point. I suppose that you know, in your time that you you were in prison, you you were exposed to all kinds of different people. What was what was the common denominator though? Were were, were the majority of them from more challenged environments? Uh, and, and was there the one kind of um, white collar criminal in there that was was more random than he was, you know, a, 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 a majority?
0: I think it's it, it's difficult to find that balance for the, for the simple reason that, in my view. The majority were in there for economical crimes. They didn't have something, so they wanted something that they didn't have. And that's how my life started off. You know, we're bombarded with things that we should be having in life. You can't access that, so you nick it. Or you try and nick the money to pay for those kind of things. And I think that's one of the big driving forces. But the prisons that I was in were maximum security prisons, so the majority of prisoners were long-term prisoners, you know, people serving anything from 10 to life sentences, 10 years to life sentences. So the destiny was prison, prison, prison for many years to come. And it's a completely different mentality from the local conveyor belt, you know, revolving doors of local prisons that you find up and down the country in countries all over the world where people are constantly in and out, whether it's because they're drug dependent or for some other reason that you know their acquisition of crime is driven by their need for drugs, alcohol, or the material things that they think they should have because we advertise things to them all, all the time. I think the common thing that I find with, with, with prisoners here and all over the world is this disconnect from, from a stable life, that when you have that, it can give you more opportunities because you have more people to turn to. When you don't have people to turn to, you can end up getting yourself into situations that you think are the best situations, but they can end up leading you to be prisoners. And I would also argue that no one cap fits all. It, it's easy to sort of say, okay, the bald guy with a tattoo on his neck is a criminal and everybody in prison has a bald head and a tattoo, but they don't, you know, they come in all shapes and sizes. I've met all kinds of prisoners in my time as a prisoner, you know, from the man who was a hedge fund kind of multimillionaire who in a moment of madness snapped and killed his wife, and he's now serving a life sentence because he couldn't pay his way out of that situation to the kid who was sexually abused as a child who goes on to become a sexual abuser because that's all they know and no one taught them anything different. Eventually they end up in prison. So there is a real, a real difference between all the individuals that I've, I've met in, in prison. And I would argue that, you know, Steve, that they're not, they're not all the same. And that's one of the traps that we often fall in or people try to judge and they call them criminals, but they're not, they're individuals. They're people that are in prison who have done something that is criminal, that's led to them being convicted in a system that is stacked against them in the first place because the laws, that's how they work.
1: I, I want to make sure that everyone that listens to this in America, in the UK and in the UAE where I live, okay, understands a little bit about your backstory. I know you've told the story many times, but just for the benefit of everybody, you you went to prison for for a long time for something you didn't do. I'll let you tell the story in a second. I, I don't even know where I would start with trying to make peace with that at any part of the night or the day. So please, would you just tell everybody what happened to you?
0: So when I was 20 years old... I was, you know, quite a happy-go-lucky young man who was kind of on the fringes of criminality, getting involved in things that got me into trouble with the law on occasion, but nothing serious, right? I was, um, you know, an independent, free, happy-go-lucky, trying to enjoy life with the little that I had. And that just put me in an environment where the attention of the authorities was often sort of in our direction, as it is many kids. You know, it kind of goes against what I'm saying earlier, but it, it's kind of you become the attention of the authorities because you're 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 known to be living in a community that is selling drugs, committing crime, whether it's car theft, breaking into cars, houses, or or, or other things. And that's the kind of environment that I was growing up in. But at the age of twenty. Um, In the early hours of the morning, my flat door where I was living with a mate of mine um, was kicked off, armed police, pointing guns at me and telling me that they'll shoot me if I don't do what they wanted me to do. So it was basically walk out of the flat backwards, handcuffed, marched into the back of a police van, taken to a police station where my ordeal began. I mean, that in itself was quite frightening, you know, having a gun pointed at your face, being told you're going to be shot. And at that point, I didn't really know it was the police because they had balaclavas on, they were part of a particular police squad, so I didn't know who they were. It's only when I got escorted or bounced out of my flat and was told by a police officer at that point that they were police and that I was being arrested for a series of serious offences, but they didn't say what. I'm in a police station, which is where I found out in an interrogation room for the first time that I was being accused of murder and a series of robberies around the M25, which is a kind of affluent area in in the UK. And for the next three days, I was kind of accused by the police of being a murderer, being a monster, being involved in a series of aggravated robberies where a man had lost his life, another man had um, been stabbed severely and almost lost his life. Within three days, I was charged with that murder. I was charged with those... um, serious, aggravated robberies and placed in a prison within a prison. I was taken to a prison called Brixton and inside Brixton they had a prison and I was 20 years old and I was being put into a unit that was housing some of the most dangerous criminals, not just in the UK, but from around the world that had been caught in the UK, Colombian drug cartels, IRA terrorists, as well as, you know, the Freddie Foremans and the the Richardsons, which are notorious known gangsters here in the UK, who I was sharing a space with. And I'd become one of them overnight as an accused murderer. And the reason wasn't just the offences but it was the publicity that surrounded the offences you know it was front page news headlines on all our national newspapers the sun the news of the world and all the other kind of broadsheet papers as well as all the news outlets you know there was this kind of running commentary i didn't know this at the time i found this out in months to come but there was this kind of ongoing onslaught of commentary about this gang needs to be caught they're a terror to england to society. So that as a backdrop led to me being housed inside a prison within a prison with some of the country's most dangerous criminals. And I spent the next 12 years in prison fighting against those convictions. It took 18 months before I went to trial. I was tried, despite the fact, and this is an important ingredient, despite the fact that the victims of the crimes and the newspapers at the time of my arrest had been detailing not only the crimes, but the perpetrators, the, 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 the people that were responsible. And they described the offenders as two white men and one black man. Myself, at the time, I had dreadlocks, brown skin. My co-defendant was a black guy with dreadlocks. My third co-defendant, who I didn't know, was also a black man. So there was something wrong from the very get-go that something racist was going on i didn't know this at the time this is me talking in hindsight um so the fact that i was charged the fact that i was placed in this prison within a prison the fact that i stood in the dock and was telling the jury that i was not guilty by this time saying to them you've heard the victims come in here and describe the color of the skin of the men that committed these crimes and we're going into detail like blue eyes i don't have blue eyes my co-defendants don't have blue eyes And so the victims were not being believed, let alone me, little old me, 21-year-old now, in the dock being accused of this murder and series of robberies. They're not believing me, but they're not believing the victims. This is where the criminal justice system in this country has the power to do what it wants. And I was convicted and I was destined to spend the rest of my life in prison because my sentence was life with an additional 54 years, and I would never have been released had I not accepted guilt for a crime that I didn't commit, fortunately, 12 years in a British maximum security prisons all over the country, I was able to campaign and win the, the support of people who were at first calling me a monster. And when I say people, I'm talking about the, the 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 newspaper headlines, monster, bring back hanging. You know, that's the kind of entourage of of, of media attention we were getting at the time. So had they got their way, I would have been hung. I would never have to prove my innocence. Um, But fortunately, they didn't bring back hanging. And I was able to campaign with the help of people on the outside. And eventually the media, who themselves started to question the safety of my convictions, which then led to my convictions being overturned and me being released at the age of 32. So I spent the whole of my 20s in prison. And I'll say this, in all those years that I was in prison, I was bitter. I was twisted. I was angry every day of that sentence. Um, And I fought the system physically um, and in any other way that I could. And as a consequence, I was constantly isolated, segregated, physically beaten and punished, put in strip cells, put in padded cells um, because I wouldn't accept what was happening to me. And in the early years, and I say early years, the first five, six years where I was very volatile, where I was very militaristic. I knew no other way but to use my fist and my mouth to scream and shout. Um, but as the years went on and I got older and got wiser and more educated, more articulate, I was able to, to fight in a completely different way, pen and paper being the might of, of my power. <sighs> 12
1: years. 12 years. Which was half of your life. Half of my life, yeah. I just think about that. It's like 12 years. 365 days, 12
0: years. Kept a diary. Did you? Kept a diary. And, and marked those days in my diary. You know, you think of that iconic one, two, three, four, five on the wall with a cross. One, two, three, four, five. I kind of did that in a diary. Um where I wrote the numbers in a diary in all those years, every day, you know, from 10 days to 200 days to 1,000 days to 3,000 days. The numbers just went up and up and up, unconsciously, not knowing why I was doing it. But I, I, I did. It was kind of, you know, somehow you had to find an outlet. That was one of my outlets, to write something in a diary at certain points, to to reflect my emotions and feelings because I couldn't show them in the environment of prison. And for no other reason and no one wanted to hear. No one wants to listen to your protest of of innocence. You know, the guards definitely didn't, because as far as they're concerned, you've been convicted by by the courts and you're guilty. And that's how they're going to treat you. And rightly so, Mm -hmm. in in their view, you know, there was a time in those years where they softened a little bit. But that's because the media started to question my conviction, not me or my family or friends or campaigners, because the media started to ask questions. And at that point, you know, the prison officers would slip the newspaper under my door that had a story about my wrongful conviction. So they became less, you know, volatile towards me.
1: Tell I me about then. how the campaigning started. Did you, did you study a certain subject to, to then be able to develop your approach to campaigning for your release? Was that, was that like a strategy you had or was it something else?
0: In the prison within a prison... When I first started to get my deposition. So I was in a prison where I was banged up for 23 hours a day, every day for 18 months. I was only allowed out of my cell on my own for one hour a day. And we're talking about a prison that didn't have a toilet, didn't have a sink. You know, I was in a cell with just a bed, a a table and a chair. Right. I had to pee and poo in a chamber pot every day. I go out of my cell for five or ten minutes to empty my shit and piss into a slop. So that was my existence. Every time I came out of my cell, I was allowed to exercise on a small caged yard on my own, um, no one else. And this is a cage yard that was caged roof sides. And it was a very, you know, uh, 50 by 50. And I could walk around there on my own every day, weather permitting, guards being available. Um, but it was during those 23 hours of bang up that my statements and documents were being provided to me. Um, and one of my barristers at one point gave me um, the kind of Bible of the law, a book called The Archbold. And that was the, the moment that I started to study, not formally, but started studying the law, you know, trying to understand how what was happening to me was happening to me in this legal system. That was one of the kind of things that I did, so not formally taught. And then in the years that I was in prison, I embarked on a correspondence journalism course. Because, as I said, the media were instrumental in my wrongful conviction by calling me a monster, by calling me a murderer and and documenting, you know, the, the trial itself from a negative point of view. Everything is always against the accused. So I studied journalism with the pure motive of trying to turn the media's attention to my protest of innocence. If I could understand the media, if I could understand how they worked and what they did and how and why they did what they did, who was in charge, what the process was, maybe I could use that as a mechanism to get them to to tell positive stories about my protest of innocence. And it worked because I did start to get letters that I wrote to The Guardian or other newspapers published, which then got other journalists interested in coming to want to talk to me about what I'd just written to them or was raising as a point around my wrongful conviction. So the law informally I understood, you know, to the point where I would argue with my barristers on many occasions because they were not doing what I thought they should be doing because there it was in black and white telling me that there was a point you could challenge illegally or, you, you, you know, there was questions that could have been, you know... Um, Cross referenced and used to gather new evidence. No one was doing it. So I felt from the confines of a prison cell, I'd have to do it myself and did.
1: The, 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 from the beginning of campaigning to release was how long? 12 years. So you started campaigning from the beginning?
0: from the day that I was arrested I would argue I was campaigning from the moment I sat in the police interviews and didn't do the no comment fifth amendment or any of that stuff I did not commit this crime police officer I was not there I was here I was there I was arrested less than a week after the crimes committed so I was at least in enough kind of memory to be able to sort of say no 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 I wasn't there I was here these people I was with go and check and you know get statements from them so from the beginning I was protesting my innocence by arguing my alibi if you like and then from the moment I was in that prison within a prison I was starting to campaign in terms of unpicking the evidence that I was starting to see unfold because I wasn't aware of any of it until I was in that prison Mm. and that's when I first started to see the allegations that people were making against me you know this is not a case where there was DNA evidence and and that. Like, there was, you know, I was not at the offenses. So there was no scientific evidence or forensic evidence. What there was was evidence that pointed in other people's direction, but the police tended to ignore that. So it was all about what the police had fixated on and allegations that people had made against me that were not true. Not allegations that said I committed the murder, but allegations that said I was not a very nice guy. Simple as that.
1: But there was also witnesses saying two white guys, blue eyes, one black guy. Not
0: witnesses. The victims of the crime.
1: The victims of the crime. There started.
0: were three <laughs> crimes committed in one night. There was the murder and the, the, there were two people at the scene of the murder. One guy died, the other one survived. And immediately after the police attended the scene, took him to a safe space and interviewed him, he described the men that hijacked the car where the other man was killed as being two white men and one black man. There was a, a an aggravated robbery where the attempted murder took place, where one of the victims of that crime also mentioned that the perpetrators consisted of two white and one black. And in the third crime, the victims also described the perpetrators as white men. So this is all within hours, if not a day, after the crimes were committed. And that was the headlines in the newspaper. The police hunt, kill for kicks gang, two white men and one black man but yet three black men were convicted.
1: <laughs> okay. you campaign, you learn about journalism, you learn about the law, which is when you want to learn something, like when we are at school, when you want to learn something, it matters to you. You find a, a way of learning it much more powerfully mm. rather than just a subject that you pick up. That, that, 12-year journey, had a toll on you. I mean, we see you now in the TV shows you do and all the great work that you do, and as you're sat here right now, a great guy. But I can't imagine what kind of emotional toll that took on you and and how that made you feel. Anger, of course. Talk to me about the impact it had on your family.
0: It's a difficult one, isn't it, for anybody, because only you know whether you're guilty or not guilty, right? mm mm-hmm. Only the people that are the victims of a crime that survive know if they see your face or whatever, know that you did it or didn't do it. And we've already talked about the description of the perpetrators by the victims. So the victims knew that we didn't do it. My my family would come up and and witness me um, in, in, in the most ho- horrible way because I was a, a what they describe as an A man, which is the maximum security type prisoner you can be in prison. So all my visitors um visits were were monitored very closely. You know, prison officers were standing beside me talking to my families. That was really difficult for them. But I think from the very beginning, when I was having conversations with my sisters and my parents, they knew that I didn't commit the crime. They know me better than anybody else. They knew I wasn't that kind of person. And I think they're one of my sisters in particular, my youngest sister, I've got three sisters, my youngest sister in particular, was the most fiery, feisty individual who was not going to allow what was happening to her brother to happen. And she did everything in her power from the get-go to try and bring attention to... She, she didn't know what she was doing. You know, She had no experience. She had two kids she was trying to bring up. So her whole world had been turned upside down, let alone my parents'. Uh, and, and my other sisters and my friends had disappeared by this point. You, you know, They'd gone on to live their life. So it was just my family who were supporting me. But um, I think that sister that I talked about, she now has serious mental health problems. And I think it's as a consequence of the fiery, feisty character that she was. She put so much energy in trying to help me for 12 years and took the onslaught from me over visits regularly where I thought nobody was doing what they should be doing. They were doing everything they possibly could. It just was never enough for the man that's sitting in the prison suffering like I was suffering who should be out. And I'm not saying that I was saying they should be responsible for getting me out, but they were the ones that were helping me and I was blaming them wrongly and regret every moment of that. But it did take its toll because, you know, my parents, for example, my mum and dad knew their 20-year-old son who went to prison and they met a 32-year-old man who was completely different when, when I came out. And that made for a really difficult reunion and and forevermore, you, you know because i'd become a completely different person different mindset different behavior different characteristics because of what i've witnessed what i did in prison and 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 how it shaped me as as a person um you, you know we talked about how bitter and angry and twisted i was i was able to release myself of that the moment i walked out of the court and it was at that moment when I walked out of the court So for 12 years, didn't cry for 12 years, played the tough guy for 12 years, campaign fought, and educated myself, but never cried, never showed any weakness in the sense that if I did, I'd crumble. There were times I went on hunger strike. There were times I couldn't get out of my bed. You know, I was so heavily depressed by my predicament and my situation, lifting my head off of a pillar was one of the difficult things to do how do you do that it was like i had bricks in my head keeping my head down because i couldn't lift myself up let alone my my physical body to get up and live another day in prison not knowing when that door would be open um and and my family had to put up with that i think in all the time that i was in prison so on the day my convictions were quashed on the day the door was opened for me for the very last time. So for 12 years, doors had been opened for me. So the door at the back of the Court of Appeal in London being opened for me for the very last time, meaning that after that, I could open doors myself. I I fell into the the arms of my sister, the feisty character that she was, Joanne, um, and cried and cried and cried. And at that moment, all that bitter anger, ness in me kind of lifted it it kind of almost evaporated overnight that's not saying i got rid of it completely but that was a moment um and it poured all over her you you know like rain it did it really poured all over her um and i think it was also a relief for her she not only got her brother back although i was a different brother even though we spent many hours sitting on a visiting table it was only two hours over a period of three or four weeks if I saw them in that time. So they only got to know a bit of me in that time I was developing in, in prison. So it was a real tough time for for my family. And, you know, I add that it it, it creates a, a wall between what should have been, you know, because we were close as a family. We grew up together. You know, we had quite a stable household, you know, law-abiding citizens. We had quite a stable, not the most... Comfortable, poor, there was, you you, you know, discipline, violence. There was all kinds of things that went on in our our household. Um, But we were still very close. But my years in prison created a wall that could never be
1: dismantled. It's almost like your mum got her son back, but she lost her boy. Yeah. Yeah, very much.
0: Hmm. Very much. I I think she, she would probably argue, rightly so, that the... The, the man that she got back is better than the kid that was getting into trouble, mm. but she's your mum, right? Mm-hmm. She's your parent. And they love you for who you are, not who you become where you have no control of who you become. Mm. I I think very proud of me, very proud of what I've achieved since I've come out of prison. Um, but that's, that's equated to, um, you, you know, a, a distancing, in, you, you know, because the bond that you have that is inseparable is separated by the walls of a prison, Mm. by by the fences of a prison, by being banged behind a door that doesn't have a handle on the inside, you, you know, that they can't open. I can't imagine for one moment. And I've never really found out what it must have done to my parents. I've never been able to sit down and really talk to them in any depth about how they coped knowing from, you know, day dot that there's some, their little 20-year-old son, who they still see as their little boy, because I was still young, minding, is banged up in, in, in a cell with dangerous men and, you, you, you know, destined never to get out. I can't imagine what it must have been like for them going to bed and trying to get to sleep, knowing that I was in some prison across England, a maximum security prison, because when they did come to visit me, all they endured was strip searches and authority that was kind of confrontational continuously for two reasons. One, because of me, because of the way that I handled myself in prison, being very confrontational to to the prison system, but also because of the security that comes with being in a maximum security prison.
1: Mm. When you... You me, I just think about your mum and dad. They must have all of those years. They would have read newspaper articles. They would have read books that have seen stuff on TV that I might have watched documentaries like ones that you make now uh, about you know what its life is like in prison for people and 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 what challenges they face and and the terrors that exist as well. And imagining that your your little boys in there in that environment. Yeah, I think
0: they probably took some comfort from the fact that. I stood up for myself. So when they came on the visits, they saw this tough little Raphael. He's not going to take any shit. And I didn't, um, you know, one of the first fights I had in prison, for example, was probably with the biggest guy in the prison who was a bully and a bit of a racist. And it, it culminated in me going back to my cell one day and he put a noose around a pigeon's head and put it in my cell. And in prison, that is a signal that you're going to be killed, that someone's going to take um, to you. And uh, he wasn't that kind of guy, but that's the persona he tried to give to people because he was a big bully. And I wasn't standing for it. And I kind of confronted him and offered him out. And um, the confines of the space that we were in, he only had to grab hold of me and he would have crushed the life out of me. So I almost run past him and invited him for a fight in the sort of recreation area, which was a bit bigger. Now, at this point, I was two or three years into my sentence. I'd done as many press-ups as I could and sit-ups in the cell. I was banged up for 23 hours. So I was quite super fit, quite strong. um, And I had this head mentality that I wasn't going to let anybody um, take advantage of me. So when we went into that fight, you know, I was literally jumping in the air trying to punch this guy. But in the end, you know, we had a fair fight. But it was, for me, it was a marker that I wasn't going to take any shit. And I'm not saying that that's the norm in prison. You have these myths that, you know, you've got to do something or be initiated in some way. But for me, it was a moment that preceded me in any prison that I went to after that. It meant people left me alone. They knew that I was focused and militaristic on trying to fight my wrongful convictions and nothing on no one was going to get in the way of that. In fact, after the fight, and we're both kind of blood dripped, I remember going into the shower, which is probably the most riskiest thing you could do, because that's where you're most vulnerable, right? You're naked, you're under the water. And I remember the guy putting his hand over the the door and shaking my hand as if to sort of say, there's a truce here, you know, what you did there. Um, was very brave kind of thing. But as I say, it preceded me throughout the years that I was in prison. Um, that's not to say I didn't have many other encounters with some very dangerous individuals, um, but, but that was a moment that
1: made a difference. Thank you for sharing that. That's uh, I, 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 I've, just, I've just sat through a movie. <laughs> I literally have, as so I've listened to that. You come out of prison into mum and dad's arms, sister's arms, at last, at last it's over, at last, justice for me. What do the next week look like in your life? The
0: reality is, it's not all champagne popping, it's not, you know, there is a moment of celebration, but within hours of my conviction being overturned, within Hours of me standing on the steps of the Court of Appeal where I waved my fist in front of the the, the nation's media and international media where they were interested in this high-profile miscarriage of justice being recognised, where I had my moment of, I'd been in prison since I was 20, I'm now 32, they stole all those years from me. So there was that moment where everybody saw it on television, on all the news outlets. Mm -hmm. But then almost immediately it was terrifying, to be honest, because I... I walked from those steps of the Court of Appeal and I remember getting in the back of the taxi, so there's no limousine or any kind of... In the back of a taxi with my sisters, my family, my mum, my dad, my three sisters in the back of the taxi. And I, I tell this story often because it's an indication of, of the challenges you face almost immediately. So although there's this of, of being released and that moment of grief and suffering being drained from me as I hug them, I get in the back of a taxi and they hand me a mobile phone. They didn't exist when I went to prison. They now existed. I didn't know what to do with it. There's lots of talk about people having mobile phones in prison today, but in my time, there was no mo- mobile phones. And then the prisons I was in, you couldn't smuggle a mobile phone in there. You know, you couldn't smuggle a rizzler paper into these prisons. They were that tight. So being handed a mobile phone within less than an hour after my conviction had been quashed and not knowing what to do with it, you know, they were laughing at me, my sisters, because I didn't know what to do with the phone. And that might to some people think, oh, that's a bit stupid, isn't it? But the reality is when you've not been exposed to the internet, to a mobile phone, to the things that you grow up with, technology or other things, um, it can be really alienating. And and it was for me. And there were many incidents incidents like that, Spencer, after I, I got out of prison, you know, that taxi, moving away from the curb of the Court of Appeal, moving at... 15, 20 miles an hour was so disorientating. Yes, I'd been in the back of sweat boxes. you know, these kind of big white vans that you see with little windows that prisoners are in, but you can't really feel the gravity of the car moving. You know you're moving, but you can only see out of a little square box, so you can't really feel. In the back of a taxi, there's lots of windows. You can see everything moving at a pace, that you hadn't moved at for 12 years wow. i only went as fast as my feet could take me running around an exercise yard all of a sudden i'm in the back of a taxi going at 20 25 miles an hour and it was so scary you know so although there is that moment of conviction quashed cheers from that moment on it was again a terrifying terrifying experience yeah we got back to my parents house there was a couple of bottles of champagne popped and we drunk from the glasses But then everybody has to get on with their lives, including me, you you know. But I was looking for, you know, a couple of the girlfriends that I'd met while I was in prison, you know, trying to find the catch-up moment. I was still a 20-year-old, 32-year-old, if you know what I mean. When in at 20, my life stood still. Everybody's life had moved on. People had, you know, developed in whatever way technology had changed. You, You know, in prison, you don't get to buy various, you know, different, choices of chocolate or baked beans it's all very controlled and you have to learn those things when you come out and you know even though i've been out a long time i recognize that people that are in prison today who have been in prison for 10 15 20 years are going to face those challenges when they come out which is what makes my work really important um, in in the netflix series
1: that i do what I want to understand, did you get compensation? Yes. Okay. And the, did the compensation, was, was it an amount of money that you believed was... No, no. Not okay.
0: only did I, I got compensation, took a long time. Um, no amount of money could pay me for the 12 years. And even what they did give us doesn't equate to very much, to, to be honest. It was enough for me to to not worry about money for a few months, not worry about how I'm going to, you know, and it was more money than I'd earned in my whole life. You know, earning £3.45 a week, I think, is what I lived on in prison for 12 years. All of a sudden, after a year or so, being out of prison, having a few thousand pounds was 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 like a celebration.
1: So, yeah. It, how old are you? 55. Okay, so I'm 53. So we're from exactly the same generation. Yeah. Okay. So you're you're out of prison... There's all this adjustment. You're freaked out by what's going on. You take a while to adjust. What And like you say, everyone has to get on with their life. Mm. You eat your fish and chips. You go and do a few things. What, <laughs> what, what do you say to yourself about what my future is going to look like? Did you have a clear idea about the direction you wanted ahead? Or did opportunities open themselves up to you by accident? You what know, you weren't even expecting? What happened?
0: Absolutely. I mean... I had no. In in the last year that I was in prison, I I started to believe for the first time that my convictions would be overturned. I mean, in all the twelve years, I was never accepting of my predicament and knew that one day I'd be free. But it was only in, and I'd already been to the court of appeal once and had my convictions overturned, rejected. So I went back to prison, destined to spend the rest of my life in prison. Um, So when the day actually came, my conviction was quashed. I was innocent and freed from prison. Um, I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't plan for that. My whole existence was about winning back my freedom. And so being free, there was nothing, there was a void. There was an emptiness. I had no ambition. I had no direction. I had no no idea what what I was going to do and how I was going to do it. What I did know is that I developed some skills, didn't know it quite at the time, but I did develop some skills whilst I was in prison fighting my conviction that eventually became very useful. And those were the meticulous research investigative skills that I acquired to fight my wrongful conviction, reading the depositions, the documents. The second was men. I understood the characteristics of men in an environment that I'd been in in close proximity for years and years and years. You know, the most violent, the most vulnerable, the most, you you, you know, shameful, you name them. I met those kind of characters, black, white, big, fat, small, all of them, and had to interact with those individuals in a way where I developed a a real understanding to the point where, you know, it can get quite minute to the point where you're walking around an exercise yard and there's a guy in front of you that is often on that exercise yard week after week, month after month, even year after year. And every little twitch of the shoulder, knock of the elbow, step that he takes, you memorise. And if you do that with 10, 15, 20, 100 guys, you notice in the real world, which is what I did, you notice in the real world, there is somebody like that everywhere. Everywhere you walk down the street, there is a guy that has that twitch and that guy has the same characteristics, if you get to know that individual, as the person you met in prison. So those kind of skills that I acquired in prison lent themselves to what I went on to do. And that came about the BBC, they're talking about now. So without any ambition, without any desire, there was one thing that I did myself, right? I instigated a couple of meetings with individual journalists who had become champions of my wrongful conviction not knowing what I really wanted to do, although I'd done this correspondence journalism course, which I never completed because I was such a high profile maximum security prison. They move you around, you lose your paperwork. So I never got to complete the course, but I'd acquired enough knowledge and insight to to know what it was about. And I'd asked a couple of those journalists that come to visit me or I did interviews with, if I could go for a tour of the BBC, whether there might be an opportunity for some work there. I remember going to, the BBC Television Centre, which is the old horseshoe in in mm-hmm. West London. It doesn't exist, nothing, it's a bunch of flats. Mm-hmm. But it, it was nine, maybe 12 months after I'd got out of prison and people were aware of who I was, you know, and my appearance, dreadlocks and this loud voice that I had protesting when I were on the steps of the court. I found myself at the back of the old television horseshoe studio where the BBC Radio 4 prestigious radio programme, the Today programme, was, mm-hmm. was broadcast. And it just so happened that as we went out the back of the studio for a cigarette with this guy who had invited me in to give me a little tour of the BBC, Radio 5 Live, that he was working at Radio 5 Live, the editor of the Today programme was standing outside the back. So had I not said to this guy, oh, can I come have a look at the BBC? Can I have a look at the work that you do? Is there an opportunity for me? And I don't know what that opportunity was going to be because I had no idea. I just didn't know the world of work and and how you do any of that, didn't, before I went to prison, didn't, when I came out of prison. But just being at the back of that studio with the editor of the Today programme, standing there smoking a cigarette with a few of his team, getting into conversation with him, there and then, this individual, Rod Liddell, offered me an opportunity to come and work at the today program wasn't quite defined what i would do but he just in the conversation we was having was so impressed with what i had to say even though i didn't really say much it was just a conversation and i was still using what i'd learned offered me an opportunity to come and work at the bbc not just at the bbc but at the radio for today program and that changed the trajectory in my life forever that opportunity that one man who made a very maverick decision. Not only was I brown-skinned, not only did I have dreadlocks, not only had I been in prison for 12 years with the stigma of whether you're innocent or guilty, didn't make any difference, you're a prisoner, you've been in that environment. This is the BBC, this is the Today programme. But this maverick man, Rod Liddell, who was hated by most people at the time, offered me an opportunity to come and work at the Today programme. And I didn't really know what the Today programme was. I listened to it on my little radio in my prison cell on a few occasions because I knew it did things around important subjects um, to do with the crime, criminal justice system. So when he offered me the opportunity, the guy who was giving me the toll was kind of nudging me and sort of saying, take it, take it. You're getting offered a real opportunity. And um, a couple of weeks later, I made the decision to take the offer up to go and because many people have said to me, take the offer up, go and do the job, (laughs) which I did. And I turned up at the BBC on my very first day in the same suit That I wore on the day that I went to the Court of Appeal because I hadn't had no money, I had nothing. Turned up in the same suit, walked into the BBC Radio 4 studio, and everybody was in there in ragged T shirts and jeans. And I felt so out of place. But you know what? It was such a lesson. It was a lesson that I learned immediately. Why am I trying to fit in rather than be myself? Because being myself is what got me to where I was at that very moment. And from that moment on, I've never tried to be anybody else but myself. I've never tried to make anybody feel uncomfortable about who they are rather than have them embrace who they are, how they think, what they want to look like, dress,
1: smell like, whatever. So that was a big lesson learned for me. You have extraordinary compassion for people that generally are not offered compassion. You have demonstrated that with the critically acclaimed and hit success tv show that you created and starred in and it's very moving watching your relationship with the people that you spend time with now clearly as all of us watching it can see some some of it looks quite intimidating at first and i'm sure that you feel that kind of stuff but you you form a bond with these people and obviously you've been to prison so you understand but you, you allow us to see them differently. You allow us through that window that you provide to see them as guys that have just, and girls and guys, but guys in the main that have might have just fucked up along the way somewhere, okay? That are real human beings. And that's probably the thing that I think is the, the mastery of what you do. The ability to show that compassion and allow us to feel compassion for these people. Do you do that? consciously or are you just going in with each episode? You know, I'm sure, how long do you film for, a week, two weeks? When week. You're in, a week. week. That week that you're filming for, are you just, Raphael, Getting? I was in prison too, just want to get to know you guys and, you know, bond with you, get to know you and see what you like? Or do you consciously want to demonstrate to us, the audience, that they're just, they're just people?
0: You can't do that, can you? You can't just demonstrate to people. You can't, you can't fabricate that and it comes from a very simple place you, you 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 know and i appreciate you saying i'm a compassionate person i really do but i was that guy i was the guy that i'm meeting in any of these prisons i was the person that was the monster that was the murderer um even though i was innocent and these guys are very guilty of the murders that they've committed or the rapes that they've committed but i i, I I try to get, I don't always understand what they're in there for, or I don't ask any questions about what they're in there for. My team that I'm working with don't tell me anything. That's one of my requests. I don't want to know. I want to get to know the individual. And and that's what I do. I, I see the person for who they are. And like everybody else, once I learn. A learn of the crime that they committed. I react in the same way you or anybody watching that show would. Some people feel shame, some people feel disgusted, some people feel angry, and I do. And that's a natural instinct, right? When you're standing next to a man who you got on with so well for a period of two or three days as we're filming, and then you discover that he raped five girls of the age of five. And you think, oh, my God, that's disgusting. What, what you... That's a natural instinct, right? That's a natural way you behave. And then I behave in that way and I see him slightly differently because I know the person that I've met um, and the crime that they've committed. So you can't fabricate that compassion, um, but it really does come from, you know, I've been in that same situation where journalists or people have come into prison. and I've been desperate for them to hear who I am as opposed to the label that was on the card outside my cell door, which is murderer. And all that was written on there was my prison number, MP3660 my name, surname, Roe, and the word life written under it, white card outside my door, and that's who they defined me as, Hmm. a murderer with a prison number and my surname. It's not the same now in prisons. There's a lot of development where they call people by their first names. They've humanised people a little bit more. But in my time, it it wasn't like that. So, Spence, I'm coming from a place where
1: I was those, those guys, um, tell tell me about what they think because they're, 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 it's been sprung on them that they're going to be somebody who's going to come and spend some time with them. Doesn't all speak the same language, mm. okay? Do they know you're 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 a prisoner as well? Do they understand not, that, or do they think you're a journalist or what?
0: Yeah, I think not immediately. They they don't know, you know. in terms of the format of the show, there are, there are things going on in terms of you know the process in when I go into the prison for the first time. It's all very organic. You you, you know, I I know nothing. My team go in a week before me try and develop some relationships, lie of the land, what we can and can't do um, in, in terms of security, because there is no no way I will go into any of these prisons if there is restrictions on me going where I want, speaking to who I want. I will not allow the authorities to dictate how this is shaped with, within reason. You sure. know, there is security um, issues and things like that. So um, they know... They get to know that I'm a journalist only when it's appropriate. It might be that in some environments, the resistance to want to participate in allowing us to film can be so threatening, so dangerous that sometimes it helps if the team says that the journalist coming in is not just the journalist who's going to document this, but he himself has been in prison. And then there's a connection immediately. There might be a moment where they're just curious about this guy that's coming in from the UK. Mm. I think in in the last year or so, with Netflix becoming such a big streamer and with the show itself being so successful, more prisoners are aware of it because they might be new prisoners, so they're aware of Netflix, not the ones that have been there 10, 15 years when Netflix didn't exist. They haven't got a clue. That makes it a lot easier for me. So sometimes we have to tell them, but for the most part, they know absolutely nothing about my background. They know, they know the cameras are there, obviously, mm-hmm. but they lose. And that's the skill of what I try to do. I try to make them feel comfortable and I just kind of fit in. Um, and sometimes they think that oh, I'm just a prisoner. They think we don't mislead them in any way, um, but we let them think how they want to think. So when I turn up in the uniform in the same way, they might think for a moment that this crew is just following a new prisoner, which is why in some of the episodes you will see I go through these initiation processes, which are terrifying. You know, when I was in um, Soweto, um, um Lesotho, for example, probably the most frightening moment in many of the films and I've been in some experiences that was really frightening Where guys were threatening to rape me and, and mm. I was really scared, really scared, and it takes a lot to scare me. So when I am scared, you know I'm scared for a real reason and you can see it in my face. Anybody who watches the show has seen my face so many times now. They know when I'm showing signs mm. of fear and I was really fearful and I ran to the door, but the door was closed. I couldn't get out and that's the reality for prisoners, isn't it? When those guys are ready to rape you or do you harm, you can't get out. There's no handle on the inside of a door. And that's what I'm trying to show people that, you know, if you treat people like animals, they'll behave like animals. So we have to do more to, to address this issue um, around the world in some of these prisons.
1: Mm, which I'd like to talk to you about in a minute as mm. well. Of, of, of the places you've been to, the comparisons you're able to make for how the prison service works in these different countries... Does To you, and you'll know this, nobody else will, by comparison to the UK, is, is, is it just a much safer environment or a less hostile environment or just a more, I don't know what word I'm trying to find here. It's hard to compare. Is it, is it? Because
0: cultures are different, right? Countries are different. They have different resources. When you turn up like I did in Papua New Guinea, or when you turn up in Lesotho, where they have absolutely nothing. When you turn up in Moldova, like yeah, I did, that
1: one really resonated with me.
0: Yeah, and 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 it's had probably one of the biggest reactions that surprised me in terms of. But when you turn up in these different cultures with different resources, and they are they're, they're facing different issues, you know, a lack of food, um, hygiene, you, you, you know, the threat of of violence, you know, the threat of... And I've seen some horrific videos from people that I've met in prison they've sent to me since I've got out, and I'm thinking this is really barbaric stuff. So with the UK, comparing it with a UK prison or Scandinavian prison, it's very difficult because they have their own challenges from their society when we talk about the world that you grow up in, the life that you, you live. So somebody who grows up in the UK who ends up in a prison cell, who is used to the amenities that they are used to, and then deprived of those amenities or that close contact with their love. And a man who's been married or a woman that's been married for many years and they've had that intimacy and that's taken away overnight. In some of these environments, they still are allowed these intimacies. So the challenges are different. So it's very difficult to compare because the impact on the individual will be very different in the prisons that you go to uh, uh, around the world. So it's, you know, the, the one thing that doesn't change is, Prisons are a structure, right? So it's the people that are in those prisons. And when you go into a South American prison, for example, where the culture of killing someone is acceptable in some environments, which it's not in this country, it's dealt with much harsher Mm -hmm. immediately. Whereas in some countries, you kill someone, you might only be in prison for a couple of years because they don't value life in the Mm -hmm. same way. And that's not me
1: this in those countries, it's just the reality of those communities. For example, yeah, life is cheaper. I lived in Brazil for four years yeah. and travelled extensively around South America. And, and I had um, Pete Triton on, who was in Ecuador for twelve years, mm. and and he shared some videos with me about the riots and what happened there. And you can't ever unsee those when you see them. You, you couldn't imagine no, that kind of no. stuff. I,
0: I did. I made the mistake yesterday, a guy from Mexico. So I get lots of messages, direct messages on Instagram from prisoners mm-hmm. who've got phones in prisons in countries around the world, desperate for me to come to their country and document what's going on in their prison. And I got a video yesterday from some guys in Mexico. Oh, man, I, I wish I didn't press play. You know, chainsaw, two guys, chainsaw, and what they did with that chainsaw.
1: When I got the videos from Ecuador, I had to have somebody watch them before I pressed play, and they said to me, "Look, you're not going to like it, but have a look at it." And when I saw them holding a the man's heart while it was uh, anyway beheading mm. people and stuff, horrible stuff. Okay, this this TV show has become really big and really, really successful, and all over the world because you're you're dealing with these different countries and different challenges. Do you really enjoy the experience or do you much more enjoy the relationships you build with these people and do you then continue those relationships in some small way afterwards?
0: I wouldn't use the term enjoy. What, what I would say is it's important. It's important to to shine a light in that cliche way in those spaces that we don't often get to see. We're very secretive in this country about what goes on in in the prisons in this country. And the Ministry of Justice and the authorities manage that very carefully. They let you see what they think you want to see. And they want to continue this myth that all prisoners are dangerous and fearful and that we must lock them up. And that, you know, the rhetoric of, you know, crime punishment. and, And it works because you know most people in this country think that somebody who does something wrong should go to prison they don't recognize that they often do something wrong when they're speeding up the road should they go to prison
1: you know mm. um so it's so you feel your work you, the work you do needs to be done it's like you're on a, it's almost like a, a, a crusade to get out there and make sure that everyone understands this is what's going on and it's we about
0: humanity it's yeah. about you know shedding a light in these dark secretive places uh, and some are more open and willing to to share the 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 challenges because we're all sort of saying we want less victims but we're not doing anything to address the underlying problems that leads people to commit crimes that causes v- victims and so it's it's important and it's become even more important for me as I've gone on this journey i didn't expect it to be i didn't expect the show to be a success or because we're talking about prisons As a BBC journalist for 15 years, I made documentaries inside prison, got some real exclusive access because of my backstory and because of my empathy, if you like, in British prisons that were managed and I pushed and prodded against that. Um, And and the the response was always, you know, the Daily Mail kind of challenging the BBC for allowing us to show prisoners um, what about the victims, which is, you know, just as important, of course. Um, but we don't see it all around the world um, in in the same way, you know, in, in places that I've been invited to, to come and show the challenges that they face of balancing, you know, security, protecting society from dangerous individuals or people that have broken laws that have been manufactured to control certain people in certain ways, however you want to look at it. Um, and, and I'm not an advocate of uh, abolition. I'm not sort of you've got to abolish prisons because they're not the right places. A lot of people have mental health issues, shouldn't be in prison. There are other things you can do with people who are drug dependent or alcohol dependent and end up in prison, women who shouldn't be, you know, displaced from their children just because they try to nick some nappies, sell a few drugs or whatever, where they're being legalised. So it's it's more important than than me just going in and making these documentaries. I'm, I'm hoping, and I think I've been successful up until now. And that's based on the responses I get from thousands of people all over the world and the viewers that come to the Netflix show. I think that's indicative of the fact that People want to know what's being done in their name, what they're paying for. Are the prisons serving the purpose that the authorities are telling us they're there for? And that is to rehabilitate individuals and get them to come out and not commit further crimes. And that's not quite
1: evident. A couple of things there. In America, you've got 3 to 5% of the prison population are in prison for crimes they didn't commit, which means if you've got 2 million people in prison, that's at 3%, 60,000 people in the same situation that you were in, which biggest belief to me also that the criminal uh, or the prison system is 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 a business mm. and so uh, if it's a business then the, what's in the best interest of the business in, is invariably put forward You set up the Raphael Rowe Foundation. Please, can you tell us all about that, why you did it, what it's there to achieve and what you hope to do with it in the future?
0: I think it comes from the fact that never did I think that I would do something like that. As I say, as a BBC journalist, I documented Mm. the things that I thought were important, and the stories that I thought people wanted and should hear because they don't get to hear them very often. So I was very off-key with how the BBC did things and got away with that for 15 or 16 years. When I was first asked to do the Netflix show, i just left the BBC, and Netflix had asked me if I would present this show, and I was a little resistant at first, but I sort of said, well, if you just want to go in and make these kind of crash-bang-wallop-type films about prisons, I'm not interested because there's lots of people who can do that. And, and, and I was able to negotiate that. They let me inject some of my character and personality and, and that we don't go in there with an agenda. We have a format, but no agenda. It's got yeah. to be organic. It's got to be authentic. It's got to come across as it as it is in the best possible way um, without losing control. Um, and then when I did three or four episodes of so Brazil being the first one, Belize, um, Ukraine. And as so I was coming out of these prisons. I was so shocked by what I was witnessing, the treatment of prisoners and prison staff, the lack of resources in comparison to what we have in these countries. And we complain about them day and night, rightly so. Seeing what they didn't have and how they were being treated inhumanely um, in an environment where they have no control, the brutality um, and just the lack of resources, no food, no beds. I was coming out of these places and it just kept eating away at me. So I'm walking out, doing my MPs to camera, moving on to the next location. But there was just something. And that was really unusual for me because I've been in many environments that have been tricky and heartbreaking. Mm. But I just felt that I could do something here. And that's why I thought setting up the foundation, the Raphael Rowe Foundation, would be a cause where I could, I've already got a captive audience who are already saying to me, this is barbaric, this is wrong. You know, they shouldn't be, you know, I lived in Brazil all my life and I didn't know that's what prisons were like in Rodonia and whatever. So if they're saying it to me, it means that there is already a support network that could make a difference. So I thought, let's ride that. Let's see if we can get people engaged in trying to bring about a change you, you know I'm not in the business of saying to a country you need to change your policies I'm in the business of trying to address a problem in an individual prison they don't have anywhere to sleep but a concrete floor surely we can give them some yoga mats that we can source from somewhere that they've got something to sleep on now in some cultures sleeping on a concrete floor is is what they're used to but it doesn't make it right it doesn't mean that you can't correct that so that's why I set up the foundation it's about providing the basic human rights in these environments where they should be providing and humanity will benefit from it. So giving a prison that has land that is not being utilised, the materials to grow their own food takes a pressure off of society, gives people in prison a meaningful activity, um, and food, which is what they mostly need. Um, and these things are, are, are really important for me. So that's what the foundation about. It's about improving the basic human rights in prisons based on my experience of standing in those places, witnessing what I've witnessed, knowing that we can do something about and it doesn't require the government's involvement. Yeah. All we need from them is to get the permission to go into the prison, to bring the stuff in there. And 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 the important thing to say, Spencer, is when you address those inhumane conditions, when you rethink about which is our strap line, you know, the rehumanizing of people in prisons or the way that we, you know, the purpose of prisons, and and you then lay the foundations for the important work, which is the rehabilitation, addressing the underlining problems that cause people to cause other people harm. Because if they're angry, and I know this because that's what I was like, I couldn't articulate myself when I went into prison because I was undereducated. So I used my fists and my mouth and I was aggressive because I couldn't articulate myself. So I know that once you address that problem, as I did in my own life, through no design of my own, it leads to... A foundation where you can get into the traumas and problems of individuals, which changes them, which is better for everybody, right?
1: Mm, absolutely. I think the, the the turning point for me in Moldova was realizing that that guy, one of those guys, was relying on his mum and dad for food, oh, and they were old, and he didn't know how long that would last. And that that in that moment, I was just like, "Shit, man! How do we help this guy? You know, how do we make sure?" Because it's not like he needs much. Blew
0: me away. Not that moment because I've experienced those conversations on many occasions, right? What blew me away was the audience's response, which is exactly what you've said. I was and am so surprised by the thousands of messages that I've had from society all over the world where people have said exactly what you've just said, Spencer, which is at that very moment, what can I send him? How can I send him stuff? You can't send that individual because there are 20, 50, 100 other individuals who will be offended by the fact that he's now getting this preferential treatment. But what we can do collectively is we can make sure that individuals like that guy in that prison are all able to find some meaningful work or activity where they can pay for the things that his parents are not going to be able to pay for when they do pass away, Mm -hmm. as he said, they they were old. So there are, and, and for me, it's been the most surprising because... In that particular episode, I got on with these guys and then I discovered this one's in for killing a copper, this one's in for the brutal murder of an elderly woman and a young woman. And up until that point, I was having a lot of fun with them as the audience was, as they ride this story with me and then crash bang wallop, I discover what they're in for. You step outside, take a breath, go back in. But The audience's response to that particular episode has been mind-boggling. Interesting. But it's also an indication, isn't it, of... And a justification for what I'm doing, that people do care. People do care about these individuals, regardless of the crimes that they've committed,
1: because they see them as human beings. That's because I believe most people actually are kind. At their core, most people are kind people. And when they see the suffering of somebody else, their natural response is to try and work out how they can reduce that suffering no matter what way. So your foundation is a a great place for people if they want to channel that kindness into helping uh, these people that have been through horrific experiences. But
0: it's not even about... And and, and what's important, and and my foundation is agnostic towards the crimes that individuals have committed. We're talking about humanity (coughs) here. We're talking about just improving the conditions that everybody can benefit from. That's the, the, the people that are in prison in the first place, mm-hmm. however they benefit from it. Mm-hmm. The, the, the staff that work in these environments, mm-hmm. which will reduce some corruption and all the problems that come with that. The families of the victims, mm-hmm. etc., and the community. So there is a real domino effect mm-hmm. when people do
1: care, like you just said. And just lastly, there is some hope. You were in Cyprus. You know, I, I, my parents live in Cyprus and okay. lived there for the last fifteen years. So you going to Cyprus was good for me. And I'm like, here we go. We've got the Turks, the Greek Cypriots. What we're gonna find in here? You know, <laughs> it's gonna be a problem. And you go there, and the lady that's running that biz, that that prison had taken off, really, for what she was trying to do, what she was trying to achieve and how and how the staff were trying to uh, – not the staff, how the prisoners were responding to her. And I know there was some scepticism from you um, in the episode as to are they playing up to this a little bit? But I kind of parked that in my head. That looked to me like it was progressive. And if anything's progressive, then it's moving in the right direction. Is that what you took from it? Absolutely. I, I before Cyprus, went to
0: Norway and I – at that point, thought it was the most humane prison I'd ever been to because, you know, as you enter the prison, they shake your hand. Whoa, that's a bit yeah. disarming, you know, the way they treat you like a human being, the, the, the facilities they have there. OK, they have the resources. So you can't compare with Papua New Guinea or somewhere like that. And then I go to somewhere like Cyprus and they don't have the same resources that Norway does. They have what is far more important, which is humanity. And that's how Anna approached that prison. She is treating people like human beings because then they engage. And that's exactly what she got. You saw the cheering. That was genuine. At first I was, as you say, sceptical. But I came out of that prison and I've had a lot of contact with her since. Um, The consequences of the work that she's doing, the success of the, the show about that Nicosia prison has actually affected her ability. She's had to leave that prison as a result of authorities outside feeling that she came across too positive. That's that's another story. But it was, I think, one of the best demonstrations of what you can achieve. All right, Nicosia, it's the only prison in Cyprus, so you can't replicate that in America or places where they've got hundreds of prisons. But it is indicative of the fact that if you treat people like human beings, you get a human response. Mm -hmm. And by getting a human response, you could get them to do things that they wouldn't have otherwise done Because they respect her, because she respects them, because she sees them as human beings and not as criminals who have done bad things, but people who need to be given hope. Right. Mm. And without hope, I would never have survived prison. People often say to me, you know, what was it? And I talked about the bitterness, the anger, the fire that was inside me. But there was always, always the foundation of I hope that one day my convictions would be overturned. I hoped, I hoped, as many people do. And she gives people hope in that Cypriot mm-hmm. prison. And and I give people hope when I meet them all, all the time. Young guys, 15, 20, destined to spend the next 30 years in prison. They're looking at their 20, they're not getting out to their 50. And I'm going in there and saying to them, look at me. I came out and I made a success. Now, you might not be able to do that, but what you need to be able to do is hope that you can change. And they really buy into that. They really do.
1: When I see people who have experienced some form of trauma and their sense of mission and purpose on the back of it, we spoke about Alex Lewis earlier, losing his arms and his legs. To me, you have, you have taken an awful situation and you've turned it into such a positive, but not just for you, but for so many people, that is that is the mark of somebody that really is on a mission and has purpose in their life to try and find an outcome. And I got nothing but a huge amount of respect for you and the work that you do. Raphael, thank you thank you thank you so much for coming on the show today it means the world to me and i'm really grateful you came
0: well i I appreciate what you just said and 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 you're most welcome and it was an interesting conversation and i do appreciate you 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 giving me the platform to share some of the insights the experience and the journey that i'm on and i'll end with this You, you can only this is what i believe and it might not be for everyone right you, you can only achieve those goals and that purpose when you don't know you're, you're heading in that direction, right? When it, when it comes at you, when if you, if you're planning it too much, you're, you're, you're setting yourself up for failure or, or challenges and stresses. And so it happens organically. And I think that's where you really find your purpose, because if you go searching for it, you won't find it. It will come to you.
1: And it came to me. <laughs> Wonderful. It's not the pushing, it's the pulling. It's like it takes you. Mm. Wonderful. Thank you so, so much for coming to join us today. You're welcome.